Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network and Anthropology podcast, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host of the channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Ashante Reese about her book, Black Food Geographies, Race, Self-Reliance, and Food Access in Washington, D.C. Dr. Reese is an assistant professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Systems at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So Ashante Reese, welcome to the show. Thank you. So can you, um, can we begin the interview by you just telling us a little bit about yourself, if you could talk about your background, your training, um, how you came to write the book, how you became interested in this topic? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in small town, in a small town in East Texas. Um, and by small, I mean about 7,000 people. Every time I say small town, people are thinking like, oh, 100,000 people. No. like an actual town. Um, And I went to undergrad at um, Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. And San Antonio was a really pivotal experience for me because having grown up in a small town, A, it was the first time I was living in a city and I was entirely fascinated by cities. And then also living in San Antonio where I realized that the ways people are organized in cities matters and the way cities are organized can either improve one's quality of life or not. And so after undergrad, I taught middle school for a couple years and that was another pivotal experience because that's what actually landed me with thinking about food because I had taught middle school and I talk a little bit about this in the book, but an experience with two of my students really made me stop and think about food access um, in a way that I had not thought about before. And so when I decided I was going to go to graduate school and I was going to study anthropology, I, I basically picked up these questions that students had asked me that I couldn't answer and decided that that's what I wanted to understand more. I wanted to understand more about the built environment, how that impacts food access. At the time, I was really, really interested in how it impacted youth. And of course, that shifted a bit, as you see in the book. Um, but ultimately, like what it what I can now name is that I was interested in the connections between cities and Black life, and I happened to use food as the way for me to think about that. So at American, um, I entered anthropology. At the time, there was a concentration on race, gender, and social justice, which is what attracted me there. And I I went to graduate school because I wanted to learn, I wanted to read, I wanted to write. I had not landed that I wanted to be a professor or work in a university setting and actually, honestly, had not landed that for myself until I got my first job. But I was mentored and and, and am still mentored by Rachel Watkins, um, Michael Bader, who's a sociologist, and Psyche Williams-Forston. They all had their own uh, unique influences on how I came to write what I write um, and what I wrote in the book. 
But most of all, I think those three people encouraged me to think about writing as a process um, and not just the product. So Rachel would always say to me, rigor is a process. And I love that because it helped me think about, okay, I'm not just producing a dissertation. And then subsequently, I'm not just producing a book. Like, how can I do justice to a topic that I really care about? So that's like a brief kind of introduction to my background. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, so the the text, the book, um, Black Food Geographies, it's a very rich ethnographic account of the ways in which African-Americans um, access food um, in an area commonly referred to as a, a food desert, right? And so, you know, the term food desert, of course, is, it's you know, it's popularly used um, to describe an area that appears to have few options or locations to purchase food. Um, but your book is really a powerful critique. I think it really, um, that's, you know, part of the, the doing justice, part of the, you know, idea of the doing justice that you talk about um, is this critique of the idea of a food, of a food desert. Um, and so I was just going to, wanted, wanted to just begin by having you just talk about just the general problems with this term um, and other terms that are more maybe holistic or critical that really talk about the problem of food access in urban communities. Yeah, sure. Thank you for asking that. Um, so one of the things that I want to start off by saying is that, you know, terms change, they shift, language changes, meanings change, and also our understanding of these terms change. So when I first came into studying food access, I was like most people and hadn't really thought about what the term food desert might imply. And there were a few things that helped shift my understanding of this. Um, one, I want to give a shout out to LaDonna Redmond, who's been doing work around food activism for a very long time. And she has a TED Talk that's called Food Justice 2.0. And I watched it fairly early and was really, um, it was really helpful. LaDonna, at that point, you know, there were, there was all this stuff that was happening. Food was on the radar. There was healthy food initiatives coming up all over the place. And LaDonna's TED Talk really brings us back to thinking about structurally and foundationally, what are we actually trying to get at? What do we? What is the root of the in- inequity? And in that TED Talk, she talks about the connections to enslavement, racial segregation, and all of that. So that was happening on one front. I was also being mentored and influenced by, um, I already mentioned Michael Bader, he's a sociologist, but he was doing work on the built environment, racial segregation, these things. And I was doing work at Johns Hopkins at the Center for Health Disparity Solutions. So all of these different things were happening at the same time. Um, Not to mention that once I got into the field, what people were saying about their experiences didn't match up with these measures of so-called food desert. So there had been activist work like LaDonna. There was also kind of scholar activist work like Nia Jones and Food for Black Thought. All of these different things were happening around the same time. And so when I started field work, people had strong critiques of their neighborhood, right? But what differed from how we see food desert operates popularly is A, like their critiques, a lot of the critiques were rooted in the idea of structural racism. When you look at food desert definitions broadly, 
Most of them do not include measures of race, including if we look at the ERS data um, and the food, the quote unquote food desert maps, there are overlays for income. There are overlays for car access. There are overlays for where stores are and no overlays for race. And I think that's intentional, right? Like to say food deserts, we think of a very concrete place and we don't think about the processes that underlie how a place get that way. Um, and for me, I use residential se- segregation as an, as an as an avenue to think about that. But people use other other ways of thinking. And then another thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the book, is once a community gets this label, that is almost synonymous with the idea that there is nothing there. And historically, when thinking about Black communities in the U.S. and even beyond the U.S., there's this connection between Blackness and nothingness. And that's something that I think in the book I wanted to disrupt a bit. Yeah, and then, absolutely. Sorry. Um, And so I wanted to then also take us, because you said the people in the community, um, I wanted you to just orient us to the community. It was particularly the Deanwood community of Washington, D.C. Um, and so I was going to ask, how did you choose this site? And can you just describe um, or orient us to, to the site, to the Deanwood community? Yeah. So with your first question, how did I choose? Um, it kind of chose me in the sense that I, even up through um, the start of my dissertation work, um, kind of honing in on where I was going to do my work. Deanwood wasn't it. <laughs> I had a plan to do work in an entirely different part of the metro area. Um, but I had been volunteering in Deanwood. Uh, when I first started graduate school, I was looking for opportunities to do something meaningful outside of, of school. And since I had taught middle school before, I was looking for places I can volunteer with children. I love working with kids. And so I called a bunch of community centers and Deanwood was one. When I called the rec center, they said, can you come today? And I said, sure. So I ended up volunteering there, got to know people. And the director of the rec center at the time, a few years, a couple of years into my having been there for a while, was asking me about my studies. I was telling him what I was interested in. And he asked me, he said, did you ever think about doing your research here? And I said, no, I just come over here to volunteer or whatever. And he says, I think you should do a little bit of research about the history of the neighborhood and see if it's a good fit. And so I did. And what I found immediately was there's really interesting history and historical narrative around self-reliance on the one hand. And on the other hand, it is a neighborhood that's located in upper Northeast um, DC. It's a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of written history. And so both of those things in tandem made it interesting to me to think about how, if I did work on this neighborhood, how that might contribute to more written history about the neighborhood. But also I was really deeply engaged and interested and curious about this question of self-reliance. And I wanted to know like how that showed up and what people were saying. So like when I started doing work in Deanwood, I never asked people about self-reliance, but because it's part of the neighborhood's branding, people talked about it quite often. And I wouldn't even say neighbor, just the neighborhood's branding. I really think that there's this ethos and there's this pride around this idea of self-reliance. So Deanwood, upper Northeast DC, uh, 
even people who live in DC, when I would say I was doing research in Dean Wood, they'd say, where's that? So that's the kind of, it, it's not like legible to a lot of people. Um, it's in, in the book, I write about it as being a place that hadn't been heavily gentrified yet. Um, I think that is still true to a limited extent. Um, being in Northeast DC and upper Northeast DC, it, uh, I'm using protection in quotation marks. It protected uh, Dean Wood a bit because it's kind of off the beaten path and it's not well connected on public transit. So um, I started doing work there because it was interesting right across, like one of the boundaries of Dean Wood on the other side is Prince George's County, Maryland. Um, so yeah, I kind of accidentally ended up being there and it was probably the best accident of my academic career so far. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. <clears throat> um, and so in the book, in chapter one, um, you really like give us this broader context for Dean Wood, um, and you place it, you know, you give us this, um, historical context for the neighborhood and, and you place it within these, um, historical processes of, um, of the conditions of what, of what conditions the decrease in options for purchasing, purchasing food. Um, and I thought this was so interesting because, um, I've, I've never thought about what are the historical conditions that have, you know, sort of generated these, um, this, this situation, the problems that you're, that you're looking at. Um, and you lay out this really great, um, like timeline, which is, I mean, it's complex, right. But you talk about, you know, histories of family gardens and hucksters, um, and local stores, um, and then how they're displaced by supermarkets. So I was just wondering if you could talk about that process a little bit, um, and anything else you want to say about that because, and then how the supermarkets leave. Um, and so the question is just about just the his- historical processes that bring about the very, you know, the very problems that you're looking at in the present. Yeah, that's, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so yesterday in my class, I just taught this article that I really, really love. Um, and it's written by a geographer, Bobby Wilson, and it's called Capitals Need to Sell. And the, the article is great because it, it there's this overview of this transition from enslavement, um, from Black people's transition from enslavement, and what that meant for the economy particularly what that meant for economies that developed in these segregated spaces. So I mentioned that because Dean Wood is, is basically exactly the kind of place that Bobby Wilson is writing about in this article. So predominantly Black, has been predominantly Black, at least since the 1930s. There, you, there's, there has historically been, and even still is, a lot of class diversity in the neighborhood, though the median income is less than the median income of D.C. All of that is important because in these early, earlier formations of neighborhoods, it was not um, uncommon for there to be several small gen- general stores sprinkled throughout the neighborhood. It also wasn't uncommon for cities to have these larger like markets, um, outdoor markets where you could buy like things that you might not have been able to buy regularly in your um, neighborhood. Think farmer's market, but perhaps on a larger scale. And so there's that about food. And what's happening in the, on the outer ring is that we see that as capitalism does, right, like there's this move toward efficiency. 
there's this move toward technological advances. There's this move toward like being able to do more things in shorter time, shorter time. So we also see refrigeration improving. We see food being able to travel further di- distances because of improvements in transportation. Um, and this is also the context in which we start to see uh, what we now think of as supermarkets. So supermarkets had this advantage over these smaller mom and pop stores or what some people call mom and pop stores. Some of those advantages included buying power, um, being able to buy in bulk for cheaper, um, being able to hire more people and being able to have longer hours. So that was a huge shift because thinking back to this model where I said there were multiple kind of stores and people might shop at the one that was closest to them, as those stores start to not no longer be available, then supermarkets become this mega place where you can get everything that you need in one, one place. Um, that's all great. But then what might have been 10 stores and now you have, if you have even any two or three stores, that's where we start to see how supermarkets pattern along the lines of race and class in cities, that they're locating in places. And, and if someone is studying, someone else who's studying supermarkets might also say, yes, but they do this because they're not thinking about race and class. They're thinking about their bottom line. The market is deciding, right? That's a, that's a thing that someone might say. But the thing about the market, and this is why I brought up Bobby Wilson's work, is that the market isn't race neutral. Capital's imperative is to bring as many consumers into the market as possible. And then there's this competition for consumers. Um, Something like food is really interesting to think about because everybody needs to eat. So the thing about the study that is true both historically and in the contemporary moment is that people will travel to get the food that they need. Um, And I think that that's a part of, that has become almost a normal everyday experience that really at some point historically wasn't a normal everyday experience. Um, Historically, they're in cities at least. I I think rural areas have a little bit of a different geography, but um, historically in cities, people have often been able to walk to access the food that they need. Um, and in the, and it seems like in the neighborhood, and so you were saying this, that people have to, um, you know, travel to, to get what they need. Um, to pick up on that thread, it seems like, um, you know, what you're emphasizing with this idea of self-reliance um, is that, you know, residents, have to rely on themselves um, for, you know, acquiring food. Um, and they're doing that after, you know, supermarkets, um, which you talk about in chapter one, after su- supermarkets have also, in a way, um, evacuated the city uh, after some, you know, upheavals and, and, and you know, protests and tensions um, in the mid-60s, in the late 68s. And so you talk about this um, idea of self-reliance um, as like a theory and a scaffolding for the book. Um, it pulls everything together very well. Um, and you discuss how residents navigate the food scene um, in their Deanwood community. Um, and in particularly in chapter you know, two and three, you have these really rich um, interviews with people where they, where they you know, are talking about 
um, how they access food and their ideas of the neighborhood. Um, and so I just want to quote you um, on page eight, you describe, quote, geographies of self-reliance. And you say that this is, quote, how residents physically navigate the food landscape, where they shop, how they get there, for example, and more phenomenal phenomenological concerns, memory, nostalgia, personal and communal priorities, hope, engagements with history, and racialized responsibility. I'm um, so I was wondering if you could just talk about this um, idea of self-reliance, um, or how you conceptualize it, um, and how it emerges, you know, from the interviews with the residents. And I and it was interesting too that you said that it's sort of part of the ethos of the community as well. I was that was interesting. Um, I think that, well, I think a few things. I think that for Black people in the U.S., and maybe this extends also beyond the U.S., but, but certainly here, there are ways that even the most hopeful of us tend to be skeptical of whether or not the state is going to be able to fully meet our needs state or corporate actors, right? And I think that that's part of what comes out in this self-reliance thing, which is a real deep and embodied understanding of how race and racism works in this country. And if racism is working the way that it is intended to, and it always does, or usually does, then there's always going to have to be a plan for like getting your needs met. And I think that that's part of what is true about Dean Wood's ethos around self-reliance. The other thing is this neighborhood, just giving a little bit more context. So when, when Dean Wood started to develop as a neighborhood, it, it's not the center of DC. It's not like Shaw. It's not like LaDroit Park. It's not these places where there was this thriving or considered to be a thriving black cultural center for a number of <laughs> For a number of people, Deanwood was just considered like the country and like kind of backwoods, didn't have running, like uh, wasn't tied into the, the city sewer system for a long time, took a while to get even paved streets. So all of that is important because that is part of where this self-reliance ethos comes from, right? People were gardening, they were farming, you know, there was class um, integration to some extent within the neighborhood. People were building their own homes, all of that. So in the present moment, when people are talking about self-reliance, they're like theorizing on one hand, but they're also very much pointing to, to their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their neighbors, whomever that they knew who did these things in the neighborhood. And that's a, that's a blessing in some ways. And then it's also, it also becomes a very uh, sharp edge of critique, as you see in the book, where people will say, we used to do these things. Why aren't we doing it now? Right. And then take on full responsibility. Right. Which is that's the that's the tension around self-reliance. Of, I acknowledge the ways that the state is going to fail me so we can do these things. But like the then turning around and taking sole responsibility when theoretically the state has some should have some responsibility in caring for its citizens. So. That is um, part of the self-reliance thing. The other part is um, there's this really, I kind of write about this more implicitly than explicitly, but there is a there was a really strong current of people wanting to have a community that felt um, 
cohesive. Uh, there is a strong investment. And, and for a lot of people, self-reliance or a lack of self-reliance was used as a, as the explanation for why the neighborhood didn't feel cohesive. And that's really interesting because that gets into questions around homogeneity and difference and all of these things that I, I do think kind of come out a little bit in the book, but I didn't write about as explicitly as I maybe could have. Um, because at heart, our fund of, these are fundamentally questions around who belongs, who doesn't, what does it mean to belong? What does it mean to create a community where people know each other or to, to go back to one of my participants, a community, uh, she wanted a community where she no longer needed to lock her doors like she did when she was a kid. Like, what does it mean for that nostalgia to come into the present and shape our understandings of what we should or should not be doing for the sake of our community? And so self-reliance became this very powerful um, ethos, yes, but like I think in the book I call it a cultural logic. And I and now after having written the book, I've been thinking more about metaphor, like how does self-reliance show up as metaphor in food spaces and Deanwood and beyond? I don't have an answer to that. It's just something that I've been thinking about. Um yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope that answered your question. I feel like I rambled a, a little bit. but Oh, no, I think it, it answered it um, really well. I mean, I really enjoyed um, reading people's accounts of, like, how you talk about nostalgia, how people are talking about restaurants that aren't there and supermarkets that aren't there. You know, they're relying on and the gardening and talking about their families. Um, and we'll talk about methods a little bit, but um, because it just seems like, these are things that keep coming up that people continue to reference, um, you know, without you necessarily having to prompt them. Um, these are like really important um, things to people. Um, and I, I have a, you kind of got into this too. And so I don't know if you would have more to say about this because I thought when I, when I think when, when you think about self-reliance like today, um, one might think about neoliberalism and, decrease in protections and securities, um, the company, you know, the receding state, um, and how we kind of have to rely on ourselves in free market capitalism. Um, but, but it seemed like your idea of self-reliance is, is distinct from this. I thought you were giving us like a different spin on self-reliance that's more rooted, um, that's more complex and like rooted in the lived experiences and histories of African-Americans. Like they might offer us another way to think about self-reliance. Um, and so, and I think you, you kind of got at this too, uh, you know, if, this, if the state isn't going to meet your needs, but I was wondering if you had anything else, um, if you had anything else to say about that or you think about it. Yeah, no, I think this is a great question. And so one of the things I should say is when I was first writing and trying to make sense of these things that people were saying, of course. In, this, in a similar way of what you were saying, I started thinking about neoliberalism. And I have to really credit um, Psyche Williams-Forson, who really pushed me to think about, um, are there other ways to conceptualize these um, thoughts, these behaviors, these desires outside of neoliberalism? In other words, like, is there something about the way Black people and Blackness is operating in this space that... Um, cannot wholly be defined or understood or explained by neoliberalism. 
And that was our huge, that, that her telling me that or asking me these questions was helpful because I felt like it freed me to think about alternative ways of thinking about how black people were relating to space and moving through space. Um, that said, I do think that there is something important about neoliberalism in terms of the kinds of quote unquote solutions that are offered to food inequities. Um, and I think it's a question that many food scholars are grappling with right now, which is there is this tension between certainly wanting everyone's food food needs to be met and the kind of nonprofit industrial complex funding tied to these measurable, all these things um, that really aren't about addressing the state's woefully inadequate way of caring for the needs of its citizens and more like this other industry um, that has developed in response to food inequities. So, yeah, I think that there is a way that I, I can now see, now that the book is out and I'm not writing it anymore, I can now see how not writing about these, um, not writing about these communities solely in terms of neoliberalism opens up possibilities for us to kind of see people's desires more fully um, and not just kind of create a new market for how to deal with it. Yeah, because it gets at that tension of like the individual and the collective because the people you're talking about, they're talking about like collective uplift and resistance. Um, they recognize inequality, but also take it upon themselves. Uh, I just I really appreciated that sort of complex idea of self-reliance that's definitely different. That was very like, the other thing about, I was actually, the self-reliance piece of the book, which I I think is obviously a really big piece of the book, is also the one that I was, and probably still am in some sense, most nervous about, right? Because I have thought about how self-reliance has been taken up as a national value. And I think that's complicated. Um, and I think that there are so many con conceptions of the self um, that self-reliance could easily be read in so many different ways. So I just say that, say, I appreciate you like offering the commentary that you have already on, on the self-reliance piece. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you talk, so you talk just kind of picking up on what you said about solutions. Um, so it appears, you know, from the from the book, from chapter one, where you lay out these, you know, the historical processes, it appears that, you know, supermarkets um, are thought to be maybe the solutions to some of the problems, but they're also part of the problem as well. Um, and so at the end of the book, in the conclusion and the last couple chapters, um, you talk about, you know, self-reliance, not just as this lived experience, but as a blueprint for a possible future. Um, and you talk about the community garden and maybe like black co-ops as well. Like you talked about a black co-op in North Carolina. Um, and so I was just wondering um, if you could just, if you can talk about how, how you're thinking about just kind of expand on what you just said, but the solutions, maybe the one that the community garden in the, in the book where I was really impressed by the particular gentleman who you were 
talking to who he opened up his apartment and he had all of these plants in it, in it. And then he, you know, was also responsible for the garden and you see this transfer of knowledge to teach young people how to garden. Um, and so just what you think about that or, you know, or whatever, or the co-op um, and moving forward with, uh, you know, you say food in the context of black liberation. So. Yeah, no, these are great questions. And um, as you probably see in the conclusion, like I offer these examples of spaces for us to think about possibilities. And I am also like, I am very clear that I do not have the solutions or the answers to these um, questions and that I don't want to, right? And part of the reason I don't want to is because I think that kind of furthers this idea that there is an expert who could spend however many years I spent in the field and then therefore like I can tell people what they what they want and what they need. Um, so I, I want to mention a couple of things. One, one of my favorite academic articles is um, Catherine McKittrick's Plantation Futures. And one of the reasons I love that is I think it is a great demonstration of this refusal to have all the answers, but at the same time, demonstrate the ways that we historically have always had these, what she calls secretive histories that emerge. And these are like these mini pockets of spaces that where people dream, where they resist, where they create these other possibilities. And she referred, she's um, using Sylvia Winter as a, um, Sylvia Winter's essay on the plot uh, as, as an example. And so for me, that chapter about the garden, I love talking about that chapter so much because that's my version of the plot, right? Like that's my version of this kind of space that is breeding possibility no matter how much precarity is, is happening around the outside, right? But what people mostly want when they ask about solutions is a one, either like a one size fit all or some grand narrative about solutions. And I'm wholly, in, in a lot of ways, I am wholly against these grand narratives. So I look at this garden sometimes that I talk about as a little garden that could, as an example of the kinds of work we should be looking for, this localized work that comes out of people being together, thinking together, creating together. Um, and not that someone decided by running a bunch of numbers on a computer and decided, oh, this this community has enough percentage of X, Y, Z, so let's just prop a supermarket there. Um, so there's that. And then the second thing I want to mention, because um, for anyone listening to this podcast who might be interested in food and identify as Black, I work with the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, and I proudly co-chair what we call um, the Black Academics, which is a group of Black researchers who are interested in food, who are supporting the National Black Food and Justice Alliance and its goals toward um, understanding the threats to Black land and Black food, but then also supporting organizations who are doing work in different cities across the country. I personally, um, working within groups of people sometimes can be challenging, right? And so what I have learned with working with the Alliance is that there is something really beautiful about people struggling toward finding answers together. Um, and that might sound cheesy, but like it has really been a, a pleasure to think through. All right, now I have worked on this book about, <laughs> I've laid out the problems and 
all of this and now what? And I, I do look a lot to community workers, cultural workers, community activists for the so what part. Yeah. And so wondering if you could uh, talk about, I think, so I wanted to move to how, to you kind of doing the research. Um, and I was wondering, and you talk about how people um, perceived you when you were in the field. Um, and you mentioned that one of the ways people identified you was as someone who could tell them how to eat healthy or healthily. So talking about, you know, solutions, it seemed like people may have possibly thought that you had certain either solutions or they had different perceptions of you, of what you were interested in. And so I was just wondering if you could talk about how people perceived you um, and how you manage the perceptions of people that, that people had about you. I am not sure that I always managed it well, but um, yeah, so, you know, I got asked to do like healthy eating demonstrations with children um, more than once. Um, there were times where I wanted to just talk to people about, and I would always say, we could start where you want to start. And people, you know, would immediately start thinking, talking about like, the healthiness of the food that they were eating, which was a signal to me that like, oh, you think that there's one thing that I want to hear and there's not. Um, so it was difficult because it was difficult and sometimes it was actually painful because I would be thinking about all the ways that Black people are made to feel inferior or made to feel like there's something inherently wrong with the way that we do things or the way we eat or whatever. And I didn't want people to feel like they had to perform for me. And then the reality is that even though I'm a Black woman, there is also, I was also researching. And so that researcher identity came into play a lot, right? And then I was also an outsider. I did not, I wasn't from Deanwood, not even from Washington, D.C. And so I think it just took some time, which is one of the blessings of doing ethnographic research. You get time to be with people and that kind of softens those barriers a little bit. Um, but also, I think another important thing about how people perceive me, um, you know, I read as young. I think that that was something that factored into people being willing to talk to me. Um, I also am cisgendered and read as hetero. Um, and I think that that's why that, that influenced how and why people were willing to talk to me. And, you know, I just mentioned those things because there was so it wasn't so simple that like, hey, I'm a black woman, this grants me access. Certainly, I think on some levels that is absolutely true. But then there were these other things around like, you know, my self-presentation, um, all of those things, I think, open doors where if someone else were coming to do the exact same research with the exact same questions, it may not have turned out the same way for them. Mm -hmm. and, and I also appreciated um the variety of methods you employ to answer your research questions. Um, you used archival research, interviews, participant observations, and you did a survey. Um, and I was wondering, and so you kind of touched on this earlier, um, but so you bring all these methods, you know, to bear and in interrogating these problems. And I was just wondering if you could talk generally about the research that you did, but also, um, and you sort of answered this because I was really interested in your use of the Ruth and Over Overbeck papers um, and how, you know, you included these oral histories. And my question was going to be, um, were you aware of this collection um, and that they had these oral histories from D Deanwood residents before you started? Um, and then also, 
your interviews, you, you mentioned you kind of let people start where they wanted to. Did you sort of tell them, I'm studying food, you know, you, you can start where you want? Or did, how did you sort of prompt them? I'm just wondering how you prompted them. Yeah, these are great questions. Um, as far as the Overbeck papers, I'm going to say this um, because for any any researcher, especially if you're a grad student out there, this is important. You should always read the footnotes. I found those papers in a footnote to something I was reading. I did not know they existed. I wasn't looking for them. I was just reading like a historical, um, a chapter about the history of D.C. And I looked at the footnotes and there was a footnote to her papers. And then I go, you know, over to GW and there they are, these typed transcripts of these oral histories that she had done. And I was like, man, this is a jackpot. So um, that was a beautiful find. Um, Let's see how, in terms of interviewing people, I'm a little bit of a hodgepodge kind of interviewer and ethnographer in the sense that I really truly believe that most people, when I interview them, will answer the kinds of questions that I have without me having to like go in order from question one to 10. So often when I would meet with people, you know, we would introduce ourselves, we'd spend some time talking. I always mentioned my background growing up in a small town. For some reason that made people feel very comfortable. And we would chat for a bit. And then I'd just be like, you know, I have things that I want to know, but I feel really comfortable and confident that we'll get to all of those things. But I just want to start wherever you want to start. That almost always worked. The other strategy that I had, which I learned from um, one of my professors at AU who does uh, digital storytelling, Nina Shapiro Pearl. Um, I did not, she, she actually, when I was in the process of doing research, um, she modeled digital storytelling for me um, and did an interview with me where I was telling her my food story. And so I used these strategies with people who were kind of a little bit shyer, right? I would ask a question about like their favorite food memory, or I would ask a question around like, well, who, who did the cooking when you were growing up? That question would generate all kinds of responses. Um, so just whatever it felt like would make someone feel comfortable in the moment. And I have to credit, um, you know, there's a lot of good stuff out there about ethnography and interviewing, but it really was reading um, Zora Neale Hurston's account in Dust Tracking on the Road about going back home to Florida doing research and how these, even though this is like community that she knew and, you know, people were very reluctant to talk to her. And she had this moment where she realized um, it's because she came speaking Bardanese um, or basically came with the language from the university rather than just showing up as someone um, who could just talk to people. That I mean, that really influenced me. And I that's how I try to show up, just as a person that someone can talk to. And I happen to have. <laughs> Thank you. I was, that's, uh, that was great. Um, like give a lot of tips. So I love that. I'm going to now go back and reread dust tracks <laughs> because I want to like, look at that, look at that moment. Um, so, so this is the uh, like second to last question. I was wondering if you could talk about going from dissertation to book. Um, like what did that consist of? Was there a lot of follow-up research or any like, sounds, you said you're interested in self-reliance from the beginning. So was there any 
significant reframing or anything like that that you had to do? Or so what was that process sort of like for you? Yeah, these are great questions. Um, I did do follow-up research. So in the follow-up research is where I did the survey. I really wanted to know like if there were broader trends beyond just like the hyper-focus that I had in Dean Wood, so I broadened it out towards seven. Um, I did follow-up interviews with people. I spent a lot more time in Dean Wood. So that was on the research part. So I spent like another year doing some more field work. But on the theoretical side, when I did the dissertation, self-reliance was there, but it wasn't there. So on the theoretical side, I reframed the, for the book project, I reframed the analysis with self-reliance as the connecting thread across the book. And that was um, very cool. Um, I, really, I really enjoyed that kind of process of thinking about what actually connects these chapters, what's at, what is at the heart of what I'm trying to say. I did some rewriting and then I added um, couple new chapters, took out some things that I had written in the dissertation. I think for anyone who's listening, who's trying to go from dissertation to book, the biggest advice that I would give is don't try to do it alone. And the reason that I say that is we spend all those hours writing a dissertation and a lot of it really is alone. Some of what we write in the dissertation is probably really good. Some of it may not be. So when we get back, we go back and we look at this document that we created, a whole lot of our self-worth might be tied up in that document. We could talk about whether or not it should be. I think it shouldn't. But the point is that like having other people be able to go through the dissertation with you, even if they're just reading chapters, is super helpful. So I had um, a friend whose book, Black in Place, Brandy Thompson Summers. Uh, she's a sociologist. We were writing our books at the same time. And we just happened to have met when we were starting the book process. And we read each other's work. Um, we would call each other, talk through chapters, ask each other questions, and we would record these calls. Um, and that was super duper helpful to not go through this alone. Um, I also would send things out to other people to read. The, other, the last piece of thing I would say about going from dissertation to book is that I had a lot of encouragement and freedom with my dissertation committee. And even still, I was producing a document that would get me my degree. For some of us, when we're writing our first book, we're not trying to get a degree, but we're trying to get tenure. And so you've got that in the back of your mind or your whatever that thing could be. And I would just encourage people to really think about how, um, whether we want to, want it to be or not, for, for many of us, the first book is our introduction into the scholarly world. And it changes things. And so you want to write a book that you're proud of. And you want to write a book that you feel like is somewhat of a, at least somewhat of a reflection of the kinds of things that you're interested in. So um, different people's processes are different. I can um, share that my process was relatively quick. So I had done additional field work. I got a book contract, I think in 2016, book contract in 2016, submitted full version of the book in 2017, got comments and submitted the final version of the book the following year in January. 
so um, he was quick. So I think, but everybody's process looks very different. Yeah. yeah that's, that's great advice as I, as I also revise my, my book and everything um, like that. So um, just to close the interview, um, I was wondering what you're working on next or what your um, future projects are going to be after, after the book. So I should plug that Hannah Garth and I have a, an edited collection that will be out next fall called Black Food Matters. So I'm really excited about that. We were able to, one of the things that happens in food studies, even critical food studies, is um, there's a lot of writing about a progressive West, sometimes in East Coast, and very little writing about the South. So we were able to bring together 13 chapters, um, many of which are rooted in the U.S. South that deal with questions around blackness, knowledge, production, and food. So that's coming out next year. I um, haven't quite figured out how, but I would really love to continue doing some of the urban food work that I'm doing. So far, like I've shifted most of my focus in terms of the food access stuff to more of the um, working collectively with other people. But I want to think through questions around space, gentrification, and food, and I haven't quite figured out what that's going to look like. Um, and then finally, I have a project that I'm just starting on agriculture and prisons um, that is based so far in my mind, based in, in East Texas and thinking through questions of how um, we think about incarceration and confinement on the one hand, and I'm really curious about how food becomes a link between the carceral state and the everyday, and quite literally using incarceration as a way to trace the way food produced in um, prisons gets into urban spaces or gets into our, our everyday spaces. Great. So we'll look forward to that. That, is, that sounds, also sounds very timely, the focus on incarceration in the carceral state. Um, so thank you so much. Um, Dr. Reese is the author of Black Food Geographies, Race, Self-Reliance, and Food Access in Washington, D.C. So thank you so much for writing this book, and thanks for talking about it with us today. Thank you for having me, Reagan. I appreciate it.